0: Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the National Community Radio Network. Today's program was produced on Williakali country of the Barkindji Nation, with interviews collected across stolen lands. I'd like to pay respects to traditional owners and their elders past and present and to all First Nations people tuning into this broadcast. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal Land. I'm Megan Williams. From the Mottawarra fitzroy River in northwest Western Australia to the Darling Barka in far west New South Wales, remote communities are seeking control over disaster and flood management. Today on Earth Matters, we hear from Nicanawarra woman and Chair of the matawara Fitzroy River Council, Dr. Anne Paulina, about the role for local and Indigenous knowledge in rebuilding flood-affected communities. And Graham McCrabb, a Menindee resident questioning the flood information his community was given just days before low-lying areas went under. Starting us off is Dr. Anne Paulina, introducing herself in language. And she was interviewed by myself and Dan Schultz from 2 FM.
1: In, um, Broome, my home. So, hometown. so um, I just said in my language, you know, good day. Um, my name is Anne Paulina and I'm a woman who belongs to the Matawarra, the Fitzroy River. So uh, just giving some context and acknowledging our beautiful river.
0: Yes, thank you. And I would love to acknowledge your beautiful river. I haven't had the privilege of going out there, um, but... Uh, it's it's in a bit of a different state to how it is usually. Can you tell us what's happening out on the Moutawara at the moment?
1: Yeah, look, um, I, you know, it's very, very interesting because um, these stories are happening right across our nation. Like, I'm in the Kimberley and we're just experiencing the largest flooding system ever on human record in Western Australia. At the bottom of me, bottom of me, at the bottom of the state, um, they're in full, full fire and you know chaos down there. So. I look across the East Coast and you've got flooding and fires and, you know, cyclonic things happening in in the top of the um, Queensland. So it's a phenomena that's going to be increasing. It's what the Bureau of Meteorology has been telling us, um, is that we're going to be getting a lot of water, concentrated period of time, very, very intensive. And this is going to be, you know, the story going forward for at least the next 10 years. So I think one of the things in terms of what I'm hearing is, you know, just being um, quite cautious that what we're talking about is not just a flooding, it's a, a human-induced indu- disaster right across this nation and planet in terms of climate change and climate chaos, climate wars. So this is going to be a regular occurrence, um, particularly for people in northern Australia and even going down on the east coast. I mean, we saw these floods in Lismore and um, I've got, you know, family and community members over there and they're still telling me that even after the Lismore floods that um, the community has not right-sized and the disaster plan is very, very slow. So basically what we've got is a real opportunity of of our nation to have a look at where we're going. You know, it can't be business as usual, but the point I want to make is we can't be having conversations such as, oh, this is a one in a hundred year flood, because these are only going to be reoccurring themes. We need to look at how do we um, right-size communities, but also how do we as community, people, Indigenous and not in our regions, start to look at climate uh, adaptability and climate resilience and focus some of our uh, planning and strategic thinking around what is predicted as the new normal.
0: Yeah, and um, it's right now, as you say, in a disastrous flood, uh, as (laughs) a lot of the country has seen over the past 12 months in their own way. And... You know, how is the community faring, you know? Can you can you share the story, I suppose, of destruction uh, and of this, as you say, human-induced um, flooding event? You know, what, yeah, what does well, it look like?
1: Um, well, what does it look like? I mean, it, it's amazing that this volume of water um, can come at such a quick time. Within about a week, we already had extensive flooding in the Kimberley. I think one of the big issues... Um, is how big the catchment is, 96,000 square kilometres. And Fitzroy Crossing and a lot of the community um, members have been very highly profiled in the media. But I'm downstream. I'm at the bottom of the catchment. So much of the flooding and much of the media um, publicity around the floods um, has not got down to the bottom of the catchment. And we're only just like two weeks um, into it. And I've only just had... um, The emergency services go out to our community and declare it a disaster zone so you know it's taking a little bit of time in regards to being able to assess the level of damage right across this catchment and the fact that many many people do not live just in fitzroy crossing they're spread right throughout the catchment particularly in terms of remote aboriginal communities so i've been working um, pretty hard with two of our very big communities one of them was evacuated and the other was isolated and they have about 150 to 200 Aboriginal people who live in them. And it's only just now that um, some of the emergency services are getting out. So it's going to take a a while for the recovery. As I said, I can't get to my community for at least another six to eight weeks. Uh, My brother was flown in uh, 24 hours ago and with the Department of Emergency Services and they declared it a disaster. Um, I think one of the things I'm really grateful for is that the flood's didn't touch the the ceilings in the houses. So it's really just a case of, you know, crossing fingers and hoping that our homes are habitable. But, um, you know, we won't know for quite some time. I think one of the things in terms of looking at this is really um, noticing that in order to respond to to a disaster, um, there's quite a lot of um, services and management and process that comes from outside uh, the region. So one of the things I'm saying is that if it's going to be a reoccurring theme every year, I really believe that we need to invest in local government and really look at this as the catchment and the geography and the people are saying from a whole catchment perspective rather than um, isolated communities. We need to get better at planning and disaster responses. And I think the best way to do that is really to invest into local and government and one of the things that's really, really interesting, which I don't see a lot of people doing, is at the Commonwealth level, um, there is a policy in place until 2030 called Bio Regional Frameworks, where they have mapped every watershed in Australia, um, because as I said, it's a geography that dictates how the region should respond to these, um, you know, uh, ongoing disasters, and so we've got solutions there. And I think the most important point I want to make in regards to the response over the last um, two or three weeks is we have Indigenous leaders who are place-based. They're in these communities. They know the communities. The communities know them and us. And I think one of the things is to really look at the leadership of our Aboriginal communities and our Aboriginal leaders and really invest in how do we get better coordination uh, through that sort of natural, what we call natural helping systems.
0: Yeah, and I know that's um, a topic that you're really passionate about, is um, bringing that Indigenous leadership and that um, ownership and that control over your communities. So um, as these floodwaters recede and you you get the opportunity to assess the damage... um, what kind of things would you like to see done in the cleanup, and also, you know, where new infrastructure needs to be built? How can um, how can the government incorporate um, Aboriginal perspectives uh, better than they have in the past?
1: Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think one of the big things is that we need a coordinated response in terms of how the recovery plan is going to roll out. We need to identify those communities that have very very big numbers and. you know, needing to be reoccupied as soon as possible. And I think we need to be strategic in terms of where we put our resources and our planning and and go, okay, this community's got 150 people, it's got a school, it's got clinic, we need to right-size it and um, get it going. So I'm hoping, and this is why I'm advocating for the government to take a stronger role in this, is that we need to be able to say, okay, this is where we're going to go, what's the assessment, how do we do that? How do we bring um, a whole of government response and community response into the recovery process rather than allowing, you know, chaos to um, reign and everybody sort of the squeaky wheel getting, getting the help first. So uh, for me, I'm saying that I think it's really those big communities that need to right size very, very quickly. How do we get in there? How do we clean it out? Because a lot of the, um, a lot of the personal and community infrastructure is totally damaged and needs to be removed. And we're talking about going into very, very isolated places and being able to do that. So it needs to be strategic. It really needs to be coordinated. And um, we really need to make sure that Indigenous leaders are involved in the planning process in terms of prioritising.
2: And I know your work looks a lot at sort of the deep time of our rivers and, and responding to deep time. But there's also the, the immediacy of, of disaster response and I know that it's happened across Australia in the current flood disasters, that the responses haven't, the immediate responses also by those state agencies haven't really been very effective either. Could could you maybe just t- tell us a little bit about how a, a, a sort of deeper time perspective um, influences uh, immediate responses and, and the relationship between those two, two different time scales?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, from our perspective as Indigenous people, what we see is... Um, the past and the present um, shaping the future in this moment in time. So how do we learn from the past in terms of looking at um, how Indigenous people were the first um, people involved in a water industry nationally and globally? So there's a lot of deep memory in terms of how we've managed these systems and looked after them from the beginning of time. I guess what we're saying now is that particularly that we're talking about climate change and climate chaos and in a way climate wars is that the big story that we have from community is that um, leading up to this um, disaster, Aboriginal people were very much saying how country was changing, how we saw, how we saw sea level rising, how we had increasing temperature, how we witnessed um, and experienced loss of food in terms of food security and medicine insecurity. So these things that we are observing um, right up, to, you know, over time per year is really, really important because what we're validating is saying to the scientists out there that it can't be business as usual. Climate change is the new normal. How do we um, understand what's going on? So one of the things when we're talking about uh, a total reset is that prior to these floods happening, we've got plans on the table from the WA government about how they were planning and probably are still planning on water extraction because many people look at this will say oh this water is all being wasted it's just going into this so one of the big things for me is saying well you know we have had these plans on the table in terms of water allocation coming out of Derby plans for um, water allocation floodplain harvesting all of those things on the Fitzroy River I think we need to sit down and this is why I'm advocating the bioregional framework because this is the, the type of governance we had from the beginning of time as Aboriginal people We always saw everything as a regional focus and then drilled down to place-based governance and leadership. So this is a model where we need to be thinking about what is the greater good of all within these watersheds and water catchment? How do we listen to the voices and the evidence of Indigenous people in regards to um, looking at just development on just terms, given that this is the new normal? So the conversations that we had prior to the flooding, um, is there still a conversation on the table about water harvesting, growing cotton, doing all this, when what we're saying is that country is changing. We know country is changing because we see it, we live with it. So I guess it's really, you know, as I say to everybody, is that we're dealing with complexity and we need collective wisdom. And part of that wisdom is the people who live on the land, from the land, who have been here from the beginning of time, seeing country changing, responding to the change, wanting to look at how do we have a voice. So I guess The big point in all of this is how do we start to invest in climate adaptability and climate resilience? How do we start to look at um, development in terms of maybe what was planned before is not the new normal and we should be looking at different ways to look at biodiversity, conservation, different forms of economy and different ways that Indigenous people can lead uh, some of the development in the regions by... um, Really being able to have the opportunity to document how countries changing and being impacted on by climate change,
0: yeah they're really big questions to grapple with, and um it's yeah a very sound framework uh as you say one that's been followed for since the beginning of time um and You know, people are at the moment uh, displaced from their homes uh, because of this disaster and the Matawara Fitzroy River Council is fundraising to support those communities. Uh, How can people uh, support the work that you're doing uh, and, yeah, any other ways they can show their support uh, for the people on the Matawarra? Well, I
1: mean, for me personally, the the amazing thing has been People who just send you an email and go, hey, we're thinking of you, hey, this, you know what I mean? Just that thought that there's an ethics of care across our nation from our colleagues, from our friends, from people who do not even know us, um, you know, just checking in with us. How are you going? What's happening? Um, So that's been something that's really lifted our spirits. It's been a way to keep us buoyant because, um, as I said, most of us are just at the coalface and we haven't really had time to conceptualise the true cost of this damage. So that's been wonderful. The other point was, yes, the Matawara Fitzroy River Council is um, fundraising, you know, for members and communities. And, you know, I looked at it the other day and I thought, well, you know, um, it's great that some people have given us some funds, but um, I also realised that there's lots of other people in need and how do we look at this um, from the social goods perspective? So what I'm saying is the Matawara Fitzroy River Council is there. Um, We've got a, a, a website, we've got a donation page with giving out the resources straight away. So there's no admin. As soon as the money comes in, it goes to somebody in need. We have a priority list in terms of people are putting their hands up. Communities are saying, look, we just need we just need some food. We just need some fuel. We just need this. So, you know, we are very ethical and accountable for any public monies raised. So I'm saying it's going directly to the people. Um, as soon as the funds come in, they're out. So it's been wonderful that people have had the spirit of giving but we're also conscious that this time of need is right across our nation.
0: And thank you so much for joining us on Earth Matters. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. Take care and lovely to hear your voice. Please, please, please. Dr. Anne Polina, Nickinowara woman and chair of the Matawara Fitzroy River Council. To donate to communities on the Matawara, go to wwwmatawaraorg donate you're listening to earth matters on the community radio network and from the role of indigenous leadership in planning and disaster response to questions of government handling of flood information we're going to Menindi, where resident graham mccrabb says the flood preparedness of many in the community was hurt after confusing information was put out by government Um, maybe to kick us off, uh, can you give us a bit of a summary of the last two weeks or so, you know, since the flood's been, levels been really high?
2: Uh, yep, so it was um, pretty chaotic at the start with um, the lack of notice uh, and, and the confusion around the heights, the 10.7, um, which is 500 mil, 450 mil above where we actually breed, so it's Uh, Those two things obviously caused a lot of stress and a a lot of confusion um, in the community, and uh, the river rose really rapidly. So, 24 hours after the first notice, and um, there's there's multiple places inundated with water now. So, I think there'd be, I think we've got on our sheet about 70 places to do some sort of clean up work on, and there'd be 30 or 40 houses comfortably that have got water inside them. So, yeah, it's um, it's it was been stressful. I think a bit of a status quo at the moment with the water. Up at the height that it is, so um and then the hard work will start for cleaning up and and uh, getting people back into their houses.
0: Yeah, so tell me more about the the river what was the maximum height the river reached?
2: The maximum height was ten point two six
0: and they had predicted kind of without notice that it would have gone up as high as ten point seven.
2: That's right, which was um. Uh, 180 or 200 mil above the previous highest, which is in 1890, um, and about 230 mil above uh, the 76 record, or the one that probably gets talked about the most of of uh, of nine point uh, of ten point four seven. Sorry, ten
0: point four seven. Yeah, so it didn't reach the height of the 76 flood.
2: No, it didn't, and uh, and really the rumours were around at the start that that number of 10.24 was going to be the, the peak. I, I just don't know where that number disappeared to and certainly wasn't um, sent around the community, but um, that was pretty close, and that was on about the 27th or 28th. So had that number been put out as bad as it is, it would have allowed people to make some clearer and more um, educated Decisions on whether they repair levy banks or do work than what the um, the predicted height of 10.7. And really, it's only been the last couple of days that the bomb have conceded that we wouldn't even get to 10.45. So, yeah, it's been those okay. numbers are really critical in under, for people that are under pressure and for government agencies not to get them within a bull's roar is, is just pathetic.
0: Yeah, and you know, so in terms of people's preparedness, you know, for a long time they were saying this flood isn't going to get to the 74 height. And then, to just drop it on people that actually it 's going to get three hundred mils above that um, w- did people just kind of like drop their drop their tools and say well we can't we can 't stop that amount of water or what um, what what kind of effect did that yeah. have on people's no, spirits? absolutely
2: yeah yeah people's um people made decisions uh based on that ten point seven number some of the levees that were constructed rapidly were were built uh, they 're massive now um. Uh, and other people just said that their banks weren't probably good enough to handle um, a, a 76 flood of 10.47. They'd have no hope of handling 10.7. So they made um, poor decisions, to be honest, some of them, I reckon, um, and decisions that were – well, they weren't poor. They were decisions based on the information that was available at the time, and they certainly would have reacted differently had they have had different information. So, um, and, and the late notice, the fact that uh, still up to – Boxing Day morning, they were still saying, Water New South Wales was still saying 9.6 was the mark. So it gave from 9.6 to 10.7 as a uh, predicted high. It's just just unfathomable. You know, we went from 35,000 megs a day to a peak of 75,000. We were told it was going to stay at 35 to 9.6, and they end up at 75, that's, that's more than double. It's just unbelievable. And for agencies at the moment um, to be claiming that they did nothing wrong when you drive around town and see the places that are inundated that people have had to move out of home. It's just just uh, the reality to the, to the rubbish is just um, miles apart.
0: Yeah, and, you know, not to uh, depreciate the impact that this has on people's lives and that this is their homes, um, but it's also a flood, and a flood has a natural benefit to the floodplains. Uh, and how much of the floodplains do you think are, are getting a drink at the moment?
2: Yeah, it's an enormous amount of water out in the floodplain. So uh, upstream did some work uh, or helped out a mate upstream just before Christmas and and the water was really just flying sideways at that stage. Um, It was just – that's the water that came through town. So it was arriving 30 or 40 k's up. It was unbelievable to see how fast it was moving up there. And and the area that was covering and then certainly um, downstream from here – did a little bit in the boat. For a station owner down further and, and then obviously the Poon Kerry Road, um, we had access on that for a little bit and you can see water just uh, just everywhere and the bird life that's here at the moment is staggering. You just couldn't fathom how many um, uh, ducks and, and other bird life are here at Menindee and the fish, I know we've got a big carp problem but uh, certainly the fish numbers have gone through the roof of the golden perch that were decimated through the fish gills so it'll be interesting to see what silver perch look like in the in the coming years but yeah there's certainly there's a lot of benefits from, from uh, inundation of floodplains.
0: Mm. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the carp, and there's been a couple videos I've seen online of just insane numbers of carp basically jumping out of the water, you know, like the thousands and thousands of them, and it, and it seems this is happening right across the basin. Um, yeah, what, what can you tell me about the carp?
2: Uh, yeah, like you said, I've seen the Facebook posts. I think I've seen some at uh, in the Macquarie over at Corindoy, um, Corinda, sorry, uh, of just staggering footage, and, and there's some places here. Uh, I've just come from Pamaru Pamamaru Inlet earlier on today, and uh, there was a massive amount of carp uh, in there being uh, swirled around and washed around in the in the, um, in the inlet water there. So, yeah, it'll be interesting um, probably for mine I've had the experience to see this number of carp around i've seen footage from previous years of of carp lined up at the at the main weir here at menindy but um yeah there's a there's an enormous amount of carp right through the basin so yeah it's concerning for what that holds for the future for fish um uh fish and fish stocks certainly we know that in the past carp have been able to um, uh, out compete native fish but it'll be interesting to see they've certainly adapted better cod certainly have taken up to Eating carp, I don't think there's too many people would disagree with that anymore. So um, it'll be interesting to see how the natives compete with uh, with this vast number of carp.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully they fare all right. Um, is there any concern that blackwater may um, cause the native fish or even those carp a bit of strife?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So upstream, um, certainly a blackwater event taking place there, Um Below Burke in the in the Darling Barker so um, there's no doubt that the Blackwater events uh, is is happening as we speak. Just how bad that gets, time will tell. Um, the water coming back in off the floodplains from those um, from sort of modern day uh, enterprise, if you like, cropping and and uh, tilled soils and and um, and and uh, other. Um, I don't know, what do you call it, oh, the carbon, I suppose, it's there that hasn't been activated for a long time. You know, 76, we're talking about that sort of level. Um, that's, you know, some of those floodplains are 40, 50 years since they've had water on them. So definitely as that that remaining water is coming back in and it's quite hot, as you alluded to there, at Pamaru, that, that shallow water that's coming off the floodplain coming back in is hot, full of carbon and, um, and, and easily deoxygenated on the back of that. That's causing black water problems upstream. And I think that'll continue as it comes down. We've certainly seen a lot of shallow water, um, above main weir or in the weather or floodplain, if you like, that has to come back in as well. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely a concern, I suppose. The one part about it, we, we actually probably can't do much about it. It's, it's, there's nothing, there's no aeration or anything. So it's it's one of those ones where um, le- less fish fuel is the best, but, yeah, there's not probably a lot of human intervention that will change any of that process.
0: Mm. Well, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up?
2: No, I think that's pretty it. We're sort of focused on the water, aren't we, the... Um, the process we're hoping for a review into the flooding and how this occurred. So um, that's certainly front of mind for a lot of people that they just don't want to go through this this process again. It's been a dismal failure of agencies and government to um, to predict the water flows and to alert people to the, to the event unfolding. But the people here in town hardly found out the river was going to rise or the or the lake system was rising on the, when the water was coming through their front door. They hadn't actually been contacted by anyone. So, you know, I think that's a pretty dismal reflection on, on how... Poorly, we've run this um, emergency as a state, to be honest.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of lessons to learn, um, and that you know, there's been a lot of disasters right across the country, um, and yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons to take out of how how we're supporting people through this and sharing information and um, looking after each other.
2: Yeah, a lot. Yeah,
0: all right. Well, uh, Graham McCrabb, thank you very much for joining me on Earth Matters.
2: No, thanks for having me, Megan.
0: You're listening to
2: Earth Matters
0: on the Community Radio Network. Today we've heard from Graham McCrabb, a resident of Menindee in far west New South Wales, and Dr. Anne Paulina, Nickinowara woman and chair of the Matawara Fitzroy River Council in the Kimberley, north west WA. And I'm Megan Williams. Remember, you can support people in remote communities in the Kimberley at www.matawara.org slash donate. And if you want to listen back, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters or search Earth Matters 3CR wherever you get your podcasts. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is a production of 3CR in Melbourne, but today's episode was produced in the studios of Two Dry FM in Broken Hill, on Willy Kali Country. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more Earth Matters.